If you have a Bible, you want to get it out. We're going to do a couple things all at once. You're going to get your Bibles opened up to Genesis chapter 21. If you're someone who's passing out communion, would you come grab these trays and start those around the room? Here's the, the deal with communion here at LCF. If you're visiting with us this morning or you've been checking us out for a couple of weeks, uh, we welcome you to take communion with us. Anyone is welcome to take communion who has uh, been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. If that's you, we invite you to take communion alongside with us. This, this doesn't have to be like your, your home or member, member church. We invite you to do that with us. Grab a little two stack of cups there. There's gluten-free wafers in the middle if you need those. And then just set that down on the ground. We'll get, we'll get to it a little later in our service. Just put it in a spot where you might not uh, kick it over. That way, when we do take those a little later, you'll be ready to go. The other thing that we want to do this morning as these are getting passed out is just take a moment to pray over these boxes that are up front. Um, if you're someone who filled up one of these Operation Christmas Child boxes, uh, we thank you for that. These are going to be loaded up right after third service is done. They'll be taken over to the distribution center to be processed and sent off to wherever their end destination might be. And it's been a good reminder for me over the course of the morning to see the, the names and the faces and the stories of the individuals in our update from the core shots, but also then to think about these boxes and the gospel work that we do, that, that's not done for like nameless, faceless sort of masses out there. It, it's for individuals. Um, God is transforming the lives of individuals in Western Asia. God uh, has been faithful to this Operation Christmas Child ministry through Samaritan's Purse over a number of years to impact the lives of actual individuals with names and faces and stories and situations in very difficult, often broken places. And God has been faithful to transform children, certainly, but whole families and whole communities through this ministry. And so we're going to take a moment to pray um, over these boxes that uh, they would get into the hands of uh, real-life individuals and that God would just take it from there and bring fruit to this ministry, that he would transform children and families and whole communities for the sake of the gospel. And so um, I think just about everybody has their elements. If not, keep one eye open so that you can grab those when they come by. But if you would join me in praying over these boxes, God, uh, thank you for uh, the means in a place like the Northland uh, to, to be able to do something like this. And for most of us, have that be um, an undertaking of effort and some resources, but something that we can, we can all do that's tangible and offers a way to engage uh, with the nations sort of right from our own homes. God, thank you for Samaritan's Purse and the work that they do, not just in, in processing and delivering these boxes, but also in proclaiming the gospel in the communities where they're received. God, we pray for the local church pastors all around the world who will be receiving and distributing these boxes. God, we pray that you would give them words of hope into often desperate circumstances and situations. God, we pray that you would open up hearts and minds to the truth of the gospel. God, we pray that there would just be joy at the receipt of these boxes and then ongoing joy at the reception of the gospel. God, would you take 
what, what maybe seem like small offerings and would you multiply them into something much larger for the sake of your glory, for the good of image bearers around the world? God, my prayer is that uh, one day in glory, God, that we would just get to rejoice and celebrate and praise the Son alongside individuals from tribes and nations and tongues who heard about the gospel because of these boxes. God, do that work in and through these by the power of your spirit to the ends of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Okay, if you got Genesis 21 uh, open there in front of you, there's a man in our congregation, his name is Dave. Um, he is uh, he's a student of scripture, a teacher of scripture, and he has a little illustration that he often uses to talk about, um, you know, sometimes we come to scripture and the primary thing is like this very clear handle to take and grab hold of, like last weekend when we're talking about besetting sin. Sometimes we come to scripture and Dave said it's a little bit more like a tree. Uh, you can walk outside and sit underneath the shade of a tree on a hot summer day or something and appreciate the fact that the tree gives you shade. But then if you understand a little bit more about how that tree works, how it is that it grows, what are its processes, what are all the things that are happening at like a tiny microscopic level that make it possible for you to sit under that tree and to have shade, You certainly grow in your understanding of the tree, but also in your appreciation for that tree. Sometimes we come to passages of scripture and what we're doing is deepening our understanding and thereby growing our appreciation. That's part of the goal this morning. Our pastoral team sits down on Monday afternoons every week and we talk about the passage of scripture that we're going to be preaching the coming Sunday. And so on Monday afternoon this week at two o'clock, we all got together and we spent time thinking through Genesis chapter 21. During that time, we're typically talking about like theological issues in the passage or maybe pastoral matters, ways to like apply that specifically to this congregation in this particular context. Things that we think need to be brought out of the text, things that maybe shouldn't uh, be brought out or that might distract from the main point, like nuances to be aware of, landmines that I should not step on when I get up here, language I should definitely avoid using, language I should probably try to use. And it's this incredibly fruitful, wonderful exercise because reading scripture in a group like that illuminates things for you that you would not see just when you read scripture like on your own in your quiet time. I think the we're all, as a pastoral staff, always encouraged and edified by that time together. But the, the bigger result is that what we do on Sunday mornings then ripples out and that becomes for the edification of our entire congregation. This Monday, we got together and we asked just one question of Genesis chapter 23. Just look down at it really quickly. You should see three separate sections there in your Bible. Our question was, how in the world do these three seemingly disparate stories connect to one another? Each of these three accounts seem to have their own like narrative arc that gets wrapped up at the end, and then they have their own message, it seems like. And yet they all fit inside the larger narrative of Genesis and therefore they've got to have some connection to the whole and presumably some connection to one another. 
What is that connection? So we're going to take these one at a time, kind of read the passage in chunks rather than all at once. And so we'll read a section, understand what's happening there, see the point of that section, do that for all three, and then step back and try to see the connecting thread, or at least what our pastoral staff thinks the connecting thread is. And the aim is to be reminded and to grow in our appreciation of the sheer wonder of who God is by seeing the depth of his sovereign goodness. That requires a definition. What are we talking about when we talk about sovereignty? That's a word that I sort of like throw out uh, from up here most weeks, but it's good to circle around and define that every once in a while. Here are three definitions for God's sovereignty. Uh, Hopefully one of them lands and sticks with you. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking about the fact that God exercises absolute might and right in ruling over all things. To say that God is sovereign is to say that he has absolute might and right to rule over all things. Another definition. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we're saying that God is both powerful and authoritative to the extent of being able to overrule any other power or authority. So to say that God is sovereign is to say that he is powerful and authoritative to the extent that he can overrule, override, overshadow any other challenge to his power and authority. A third definition. To say that God is sovereign is to say that God is Lord over all creation and he unceasingly exercises his right to rule. He's Lord over all creation and unceasingly exercises his right to rule. So we want to grow in our appreciation and our love for God by seeing the depth of his sovereign goodness. Genesis 21 verses 1 through 7. This is the first story in the chapter. The Lord came to Sarah as he had said, And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. And at the appointed time, God had told him. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made me laugh and everyone who hears will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne a son for him in his old age. Three observations here. Number one, this seems to get far less attention than it deserves. Abraham and Sarah have been waiting for this child for years. Not just since God promised them, but seemingly since before then, as Sarah was unable to bear children. The reader of Genesis has been waiting for chapters for this child to be born. If you've been coming with us through this series in Genesis, the listener to these sermons has been waiting for months for this child to be born. His birth finally comes, and we get what amounts to seven verses or roughly five sentences about it. If this were like a movie or a Netflix documentary or something like that, you would get an entire episode that would begin as Sarah's water breaks and they go rushing to 
whatever the spot is where they're going to give birth to this child. And you're getting flashbacks between Sarah in labor and God's promises. And Sarah's labor progressing and everything that they did to try to make this thing happen for themselves that they made a mess out of. And then flashback back to the room where Isaac is born and you know he's crying and screaming and the whole thing ends with them in that room laughing over the fact that Isaac, he who laughs, has finally been born. And there's Sarah saying, and everyone who hears of this will laugh with me. End episode. And everyone feels like warm and fuzzy inside because this finally took place, but not in Genesis. You get five sentences, seven verses. And observation number two, the emphasis in those verses is not even Isaac, the child. Look back at the first two, or first two verses. The Lord came to Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. And Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the appointed time, God had told them. Who's the focus? God. The focus is on the fact that God has made happen exactly what he said would happen. The emphasis is on God's faithfulness to his promise. And so we'll keep saying this throughout this series. Abraham may be the figure that is in focus right now. Isaac may be the figure who's going to be in focus in the next big section of Genesis. But God is always the focus of what's happening in the book of Genesis. And then observation number three, Abraham is immediately obedient. Verse three, he names the son Isaac, just as God told him to. Verse four, when Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. He's obedient. And the point of the first seven verses in Genesis 21 is pretty simple. God fulfills the promises of his word. God said that a child would be born, a child is born. God said that the child would happen a year from his visit to Abraham and Sarah's tent. A year passes and they have the child. It's worth a quick word about this. Genesis has been showing us over and over through 21 chapters here that the word of God is what both creates and shapes reality. It's not just that God's word like describes reality, it's not even just that God's word defines reality. The book of Genesis is showing you that God speaks and that creates and shapes reality. God says, let there be light and reality explodes with light. God says, let there be animals and reality explodes with, re with animals. He's shaping and creating that. In the garden with Adam, he says, if you eat from that tree, you will certainly die that shapes and creates reality because when Adam and Eve eat from that tree, death enters into the world though it was not there before. In this instance, God said to Abraham, the one who comes from your body will be your heir. And that word has now created reality. Section number two, just look at it visually. If chapter 21 verses one through seven is this like really big high point where the child of promise is finally born, the next section in Genesis, which is about Hagar and Ishmael, gets twice as much space. What's going on there? Well, in the first seven verses, Isaac is born. 
In the next portion of Genesis 21, Ishmael is cared for. Let's read it starting in verse 8. The child grew and was weaned. Abraham held a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son mocking, the one Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, drive out this slave with her son, for the son of this slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. This was very disturbing to Abraham because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed about the boy and about your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her, because your offspring will be traced through Isaac. And I will also make a nation out of the slave's son, because he is your offspring. Early in the morning, Abraham got up, took bread and a water skin, put them on Hagar's shoulders, and sent her and the boy away. She left and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she left the boy under one of the bushes and went and sat at a distance, about a bow shot away. For she said, I cannot bear to watch the boy die. While she sat at a distance, she wept loudly. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's wrong, Hagar? Don't be afraid, for God has heard the boy crying from the place where he is. Get up, help the boy up, and grasp his hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well. So she went and filled the water skin and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy and he grew. He settled in the wilderness and became an archer. He settled in the wilderness of Paran and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Some observations. Number one, Isaac is like two or three years old here. That's the age at which a child would be weaned. So the boy grew and was weaned and Abraham held a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. That means that Ishmael is a teenager. I point that out for this reason. My sort of uh, mental conception or picture of this story when I think about the book of Genesis is Hagar walking away with like a child Ishmael. She's got food and water skins in a pack slung over her shoulder and she's got Ishmael, toddler or infant or something, tucked under one arm. The food and the water run out. They get to the place where there's nothing left any longer. They're starving and dehydrated. She lays toddler or child Ishmael underneath a bush. She walks a distance away to die because she cannot bear to watch her son die. That is dark and heavy. I think the reality of the story is even darker. He's like 14 to 16 years old. He understands everything that's happening as dad says, here's some food and a water skin, Hagar and Ishmael. You're just gonna go that way. And so they walk out into the wilderness and he's fully aware as the food runs low, as the water runs out, and as he's starting to perish. And so there would have been a conversation with mom. Hey, buddy, I can't bear to watch you die, and I don't want you to have to watch me die, so you lay down there underneath that bush, and I'm gonna go far enough away so that we can't hear each other, and I'm gonna die over there, and you can die over here. And the whole time, Ishmael would be thinking, why did dad do this to me? He, he didn't have to do this. Observation number two. We're given the reason that this happens. Sarah, verse nine, saw the son mocking the one Hagar, the Egyptian, 
had born to Abraham. We're told that teenaged Ishmael is mocking toddler Isaac. That's the CSB's rendering, and also if you have an NIV, a New International Version. She saw the son mocking. If you have an ESV, it says laughing. If you have a New King James, it says scoffing. If you have a New Living Translation, it says making fun of. I bring all of those to the surface to say this. When English translations have like a scatter plot for the translation of a particular word, it means that the sense of the Hebrew word is difficult to nail down. And so different groups of English translators are using different English sort of word pictures in order to try to convey what it is that's happening in the original language. There is a thread that runs all the way back to Genesis chapter 15 to hear about laughter. The son's name is he laughs. Abraham laughs at one point, Sarah laughs at one point, Isaac is born, he laughs, and she's laughing and says, everyone will laugh with me, and then you get down to here, and there is Ishmael laughing. But it's a different form of that word, which the English is trying to pick up for you. In fact, it's a form of that word that we've already seen. Back in the Sodom and Gomorrah account, when Lot goes outside of his house to try to warn his sons-in-law about the coming destruction that's about to happen in judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, we're told that they think he's only jesting, laughing. It's the same form of the word that's used here. In Genesis chapter 39, Potiphar's wife tries to trap Joseph in this like illicit, immoral behavior, but he refuses. And so in her anger, she attempts to spin it back on him by accusing him of taking advantage of her. And two times she says, the Hebrew slave you brought, uh, you brought to us came to me to make a fool of me. Make a fool of me is the same form of the word mocking or laughing that we have here. In Judges chapter 16, Samson One of Israel's judges has been taken prisoner and he's had his eyes gouged out. And the Philistine leaders have him brought into this large party, we're told, in order to entertain them. Entertain is the same word that's used here in Genesis chapter 21. All of those to say there's some negative thing happening here. There's a negative connotation to what Lot's sons-in-law's think he is doing. There's a negative connotation to what Potiphar's wife is doing to Joseph. There's a negative connotation to what they trot Samson in to do at the Philistine party. Sarah sees it and is not happy, so much so that she tells Abram to send away this slave and her son. And that leads me to my third observation. Ishmael's name is never used in the account. Depending on your translation, He's talked about as son, child, boy, or lad, but never his name. Ishmael is mocking Isaac, and then Sarah's disposition is filled with this like unconcealed, dripping condescension. Send the slave and the child away. Moses, the narrator, even uses that tone throughout his narration. It heightens the tension of the whole thing, the tension between Isaac, the child of promise, and Ishmael, the tension between Sarah and Hagar. And then God intervenes. And the point in the middle of Genesis 21 is that God extends this common grace to all of humanity. Sarah, it would appear, does not give a rip about what happens to Hagar and Ishmael. In fact, the sort of like 
tone of the whole thing is that as Abraham is in distress over what's about to happen to his son, Sarah would have been like packing up their bags. Like here, we'll just get all your stuff together and you go that way because I don't care what happens to you. Your son is mocking my son who is the child of promise. So you walk that way and figure it out yourself, Hagar, and take your child with you, the lad the boy, get him out of here. It is broken and dark and it is not a good look for like the first family of the biblical faith. It's terrible. Abraham is in shambles over it. He doesn't know what to do, but God is not daunted. God can provide all the promises to his people while also caring for all the people of the world. He can do both and neither one negates or precludes the other. He can fulfill all of his promises to Abraham and Sarah while he is simultaneously caring for Hagar and Ishmael. And it does not diminish his fulfillment for them when he cares for them. You see that? It's God who says, I will make a great nation out of Ishmael. Verse 13, it's God who hears the cries of Hagar and Ishmael in verse 17. It's God who opens up Hagar's eyes to see the whale well in verse 19. It's God who is with Ishmael as he grows and settles and finds a wife in verse 20. That's a picture of common, common grace, God's care for all of humanity. It's the particular grace of salvation that saves us. It is the common grace of God that extends to all humanity such that we live and experience the joys of life despite our sin and our brokenness. And that leads me to this sort of application. Church, brother or sister in Christ, we need to settle it in our hearts and minds that it is to God's glory and not our detriment when he is good to the world via his common grace. That is to his glory and does not detract from his promises to us in any way, shape, or form. It is to his glory that he would choose to be good out of his grace to people opposed to him, and it does not take away from his goodness to us in any way, shape, or form. I would like press that via this hypothetical. You're thinking about the lost people around you. They might be in your family. They might be in your workplace or your neighborhood or your children's sports teams and clubs and uh, dance troops and, and all of that. They might be sort of like in our larger context here, or they might be people within our American society that you think are outright opposed to you and even evil toward you, or they might be people that you're never going to see on the other side of the world and you think about them and your desire for them to be saved. And as you think about that, what does it stir inside of you to think that the means by which God draws them to himself is only his goodness? Like we would kind of want, especially the people opposed to us, like I want them to bottom out because of the consequences of their sin, to hit absolute rock bottom. And while they're laying down there in the pit of their own misery to see the goodness of God who would save them despite all of their yuckiness, right? What if that's not the way God chooses to do that? What if all he does is pour out nothing but goodness upon them? And in the middle of their own sin, the means by which they come to salvation is that they realize that despite all of their brokenness, there is a God 
who is kind and gracious and has only ever been good to them. What does that stir up inside of you? It doesn't feel great, I'll tell you that, and I'm the preacher. But we need to settle it in our hearts and minds that it is to his glory and not to our detriment in any way, shape, or form that he might, out of his own goodness, choose to be good to the world in his common grace. Isaac is born, Ishmael is cared for, and then out of nowhere in verse 22, Abimelech returns to the scene. If you were here last week, you will remember that Abraham in chapter 20 lied to Abimelech. He put Abimelech's life in danger. He put Sarah in danger. They got all that sort of sorted out. And now it appears here in Genesis 21 that there's a dispute. So if you've got your Bible there, this is starting in verse 22. At that time, Abimelech, accompanied by Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Swear to me by God here and now that you will not break an agreement with me or with my children and descendants. As I have been loyal to you, so you will be loyal to me and to the country where you are a resident alien. And Abraham said, I swear it. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well that Abimelech's servants had seized. Abimelech replied, I don't know who did this thing. You didn't report anything to me, so I hadn't heard about it until today. Abraham took flocks and herds and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Abraham separated seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech said to Abraham, why have you separated these seven ewe lambs? He replied, you are to accept the seven ewe lambs from me so that this act will serve as my witness that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba because it was there that the two of them swore an oath. And after they made a covenant at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, left and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham lived as an alien in the land of the Philistines for many days. One more time, a few things worth noting. Abimelech does not trust Abraham. How do you know that? He brings the commander of his army to this little conversation. Uh, Phicol, this guy is sneaky and up to no good. So I'm bringing you with me because we need to talk to him and I want a show of strength. And he shows up and he says to Abraham, I've only been loyal to you. Swear to me that you will be loyal in return. Don't cheat me. Don't lie to me like you did before. Here's the commander of my army to make sure you understand that I'm serious. Abraham agrees. And he ends up bringing up the issue of a stolen well, which is news to Abimelech. And even in the midst of the conversation with the commander of the military standing right there, what does Abimelech know? He knows that while he's talking to Abraham, he's talking to more than just Abraham. The God you serve is with you in everything you do. Like he knows, he understands. God is with you in everything. Item number two, Abraham then initiates a covenant agreement to restore and maintain peace. The commander of the army is standing there. We've got this well that's in dispute, and it's Abraham who initiates the agreement. He's the one in the untrustworthy position. The well was stolen from him, but he knows he's sort of working out of a hole here. And so he gives flocks and herds, and then he takes seven ewe lambs. And if you remember back to Genesis chapter 15, There's this covenant ceremony in Genesis 15 where these animals are split in half and God passed down the middle and that's the way that they symbolized a covenant. 
they do a little uh, ceremony like that with seven ewe lambs and they strike a covenant. They're able to part ways at that point with peace restored and also guaranteed going forward. And so the point of this is that God brings peace and blessing into the world through his people. God's covenant promise was to bless all the nations of the earth. He said that he would bless those who bless Abraham and he would curse those who treat Abraham with contempt. And here is God doing that through Abraham, restoring and maintaining peace between two parties, Abraham and Abimelech, when they could have gone in very different directions and instead become oppositions to one another. God brings peace. He restores blessing. So Isaac is born. Ishmael is cared for. Peace is restored. And that leads to the question, what is the thing that connects these three stories? Well, there's a giant elephant in the chapter, if you will. And I think that giant elephant helps us see what our pastoral staff thinks connects these three stories. And that elephant is this, that God's chosen people, Abraham and Sarah, have made every piece of this more difficult or they've put it in jeopardy because of their lack of faith and their sin. There are these loose ends dangling out there at the end of Genesis chapter 20. Where is the child that is supposed to be born? What happens with Hagar and Ishmael when the child is born? And what about this guy that Abraham just wronged? And Genesis chapter 21 takes all three of those loose ends and ties them all together, despite all of the ways that Sarah and Abraham have made a mess out of these situations. God is faithful to his word. Abraham put Sarah at risk three separate times into a situation where she could have had a child by someone else. She might've been harmed. He might've been killed. And yet God is faithful. God extends common grace to humanity. Sarah's more than happy to just put Hagar and Ishmael, image bearers of God, directly into harm's way. God is not okay with that. He does something about it. God brings peace and blessing into the world through his people. Abraham has had two major encounters with other people groups, Egyptians and Philistines. And he has been primarily concerned about his own well-being in both of those cases at the expense of the other. But that's not the way God said this was going to work. God said the blessing would come. And so there's God, faithful to his character, faithful to his word, faithful to his promises, not just despite humanity's sin, but even within the results of humanity's sin. The very brokenness that has come as a result of Abraham and Sarah's sin, God is now working in the middle of in order to wrap those things up and bring about his good promises. Abraham puts Sarah in danger due to his lack of faith, yet God protects her. Abraham and Sarah take matters into their own hands, have Abraham and Hagar have a child. That does nothing to solve anything. It just creates all sorts of chaos and brokenness. And out of that brokenness, Sarah is more than happy to let Ishmael and Hagar die, but God's not happy to see that happen. He will care for them, even as he fulfills his promises to his people. Abraham's not concerned with the peace and blessings of the people around him, so he lies and he deceives, but God is. So he restores peace and brings blessing to people. And at every turn, Abraham and Sarah's lack of faith and their sin seemingly made it harder for God to do what he said that he would do. And yet it's not been harder at all. The good news of God's sovereignty, to take it back to that, is that God weaves the broken results of our sin into the beauty of his good plans. 
There is mystery that surrounds the question of what it means for a sovereign God, for a God who has all the might and all the right to rule, for a God who's Lord over everything and he rules it unceasingly. There's mystery about what it means for that God to interact with the reality of sin. Does he permit it? Does he allow it? Does he plan for it? Is he somehow the causative agent behind it despite not doing it himself? Like those are hard questions that theologians have wrestled with for thousands of years. But it is unequivocally good news that my sin not only fails to derail God's plans, but that he overrides, overrules, and overturns the brokenness of my sin and then weaves it into the beauty of his good plans. One of the ways that you can check your deductions from scripture is to run them through other passages of scripture. So you're reading one passage and you sort of think you see a principle. The immediate check to that principle ought to be, is this true throughout scripture outside of this passage? So is it true that God weaves the broken results of our sins into the beauty of his good plans? Let's just run it through the rest of scripture really quickly. Joseph's brothers They're really sick of Joseph. He's one of the youngest. He's got this coat from dad. He's having dreams where the older brothers are bowing down to the younger brother. He's super arrogant about the whole thing. And they decide, look, we've got enough of this guy. Let's throw him into that pit, make dad think that he's dead. And then they sell him into slavery to some Egyptian traders. What does Genesis say? What you intended for evil, God intended for good to bring about the salvation of many people. Why? Because it's Joseph in Egypt who saves his entire family from a famine in their homeland. Israel's sin, thousands of years later, causes Israel to be sent into exile, pushed out of their uh, promised land. And there's this group of young men who find themselves in King Nebuchadnezzar's school of like Babylonian indoctrination. It is Israel's sin that led to the exile. Babylon is not a paragon of righteousness. They're worshiping false gods. The king is a pretty wicked dude. They're building statues for everyone to bow down and worship. Like it's a broken scene. And yet, what does God do? He raises up Daniel right to being like Nebuchadnezzar's go-to guy about questions. So much so that when you read the book of Daniel, the question is, Does Nebuchadnezzar get saved as a result of what he sees God do through Daniel? Like all the brokenness of that. And here's God displaying his grace and his mercy to the most powerful man on the planet. Not just despite the brokenness, but taking the results of that brokenness and weaving it in to his good plan. Jonah tries to literally run away from God. God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah says, I'm good, man. God says, you're gonna go to Nineveh. Jonah says, okay, fine, I'll get on that boat. Secret, the boat's going the wrong direction, right? God says, uh, you're gonna go to Nineveh. He gets swallowed in a giant fish, gets deposited conveniently right on the shores of Nineveh to which Jonah says, I'm gonna go up on this hill and hope to just watch this place burn with God's judgment only to find out that God is taking all the results of Jonah's brokenness and weaving it into his good plans such that the entire city hears of the goodness and the mercy of God. Grab your little communion cups. The cross is our ultimate example of this. What is it that lands Jesus Christ on the cross 
with a body broken and blood poured out for the, for, for the sins of the world. It's human brokenness. It is an unrighteous act by religious and civil leaders in Jesus's day that sends an innocent man to capital punishment, to execution on a cross. When Pilate walks out and says, look, I'm washing my hands out of this guy. Do whatever you want to him. It's none of my concern. That's an unrighteous act. When the religious leaders of the day trump up false charges against Jesus, that's an unrighteous, that's a sinful act. When the Roman soldiers are sitting at the foot of the cross gambling over who's gonna get to take the holy man's clothes once this guy finally dies, that's a a sinful, broken thing. And yet, God takes all the results of that brokenness and weaves it together into the beauty of his good plans. And I don't mean that in some like big theoretical, sort of philosophical, theological kind of way. I mean that as practically as possible, brother or sister in Christ. It is all that brokenness that makes it so that Jesus Christ could die on the cross for your sin. That's how it is that you got saved that a sovereign God of the universe would weave the broken results of humanity's sin into the goodness of his plans that you might be saved. And your great hope as a follower of Jesus, even if you've got existential questions about your self-determination and your own sense of freedom and who's making choices in my life and yada, 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 you better believe that God is sovereign. Otherwise, you are just left to drown in the wake of your own sin. But because he is sovereign and he can take the broken results of humanity's sin and weave them into the good of his plans, you have been saved. And so for all of the questions that we might have about God's sovereignty, the good news of it is that nothing is too broken for him to make beautiful. The good news of it is that society is never so far gone that God cannot weave it all back into his good plans. The good news of God's sovereignty is that when we're on the other side in glory and we look back, we're going to see that all the loose ends have been put right into place and that the picture is one of the beauty of God's glory and not the brokenness of humanity's sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the body of Christ given for you at the hands of sinful brokenness, woven together by a sovereign God that you might be saved. Eat in remembrance of him. This cup represents the blood of Christ poured out as a result of human sinfulness and brokenness and yet poured out for you that your sin might be forgiven. Drink in remembrance of him. Genesis 21 ends in sort of a, uh, a way that we've seen stories wrap up yet a little bit odd as well. Seeing God do all of this, Abraham is led to worship. We're told that he calls upon the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. But he doesn't build a little altar. That's what he's done in other places in Genesis. He builds a little altar there and he calls upon the name of the Lord. He plants a tree this time. I don't know what that, is that a seed? Is that like he transplanted a tree from one place to another? We had a long conversation about that on Monday afternoon. Where did the tree come from? How did this come about? But I don't want to over-speculate. 
But I think what you see from Abraham is an understanding that God, despite all of the sin and all of the obstacles that might stand in the way, is going to fulfill his promises. And so he doesn't build an altar, he plants a tree. Why? Because God has promised his descendants this land. And he might not see it. He's gonna be an alien in this place for the rest of his life. But his children or their children might see it and God will definitely bring together the beauty of that good plan. So Abraham plants a tree as if I think to say the everlasting God, the eternal God, he will make it so my children sit in the shade of this tree, even if I don't. He's faithful to his word. And as they sit in the shade of that tree, they will understand something about the depth of the goodness of God's sovereignty that makes them appreciate who God is all the more. Amen? Amen. If you're able, let's stand up and close in worship. Shall we? 